This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. And welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Decode DC, The David Packman Show, Truth Dig Radio, On the Media, The Young Turks, and TED Talks. And be warned, this show is intolerant of intolerance. So if you feel intolerant towards those who are intolerant of intolerance, then you may find this episode to be intolerable. We've all been watching events unfold in Paris with sinking horror. Another terrorist attack, one that this time killed police and civilians and turned writers and satirists into blood and meat. Another manhunt broadcast on TV. Another set of mugshots, terrorists with Muslim names. And then we saw the argument start again the one the world's been having for a couple of decades now, about terrorism and Islam. To one side, it seems totally obvious that Muslims condone violence, that Islam is the problem, or part of it anyway. To the other side, it's blasphemy to even consider that idea. It's wrong to even ask, is there something about Islam that leads some of its followers to violent tactics? These two sides are deeply entrenched, totally sure of their points of view, with no data on either side to back them up. Only anecdotes. Well, today we heard about a guy who does have data, a political science professor at UC Berkeley named M. Stephen Fish. His research led to a book with this title, Are Muslims Distinctive? A Look at the Evidence. Here's a passage from the introduction to the book. It says, this book provides no definitive answers and addresses only a portion of the large issues, but it does take on a substantial chunk of the big questions and it examines them using hard evidence, unbiased by prejudice and unconstrained by political correctness. This book treats the assumptions about Muslims that rattle around public debate as hypotheses rather than as unassailable truths or as unconscionable falsehoods. The book aims to shift the grounds of the debate from hot and wispy rhetoric to fact-finding and hypothesis testing. It struck us that this is exactly what we need. Data, evidence, someone to decode this issue for us. And Steve Fish has some answers. So today, we called him up. So I guess we'll start, before we talk too much about your book and your work, can you just answer the question for me? Is Islam or Islamic cultures, are they more violent than other cultures or religions? No, Islam is not more violent inherently than other religions. Any religion, any ideology, any big idea um, has some people who will espouse violence to defend it. That's true of Christianity. It's true of Marxism. It's true of Islam. But there's nothing inherently uh, violent about Islam itself. Now, since Islamism, or the kind of radical political wing of, of Islam that seeks to establish a, an Islamic state is really one of the great challenges to kind of the hegemony of, of you know, the West and, and Western-style liberalism in the world right now. Um, some acts of terrorism are committed in the name of Islam, the same way acts of terrorism were committed by if you, you know, rewind 50 years by, say, communist groups or 100 years by anarchist groups. 
for a thousand the Crusades. Sure, sure, um, absolutely. So, uh, and you don't even have to go back that far. And you know, there are parts of the world where self-proclaimed Christians uh, commit acts of violence. Look at the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. This nut Joseph Kony. Um, runs it mm -hmm. and he claims to want to start a state based on the Ten Commandments and most Christians haven't even heard of it but you know this is a kind of crazy version of you know Christian inspired uh, violence it's not really inspired by true Christianity of course any more than these Islamists are inspired by real Islam but um, but you know any religion any ideology has its violent proponents in my work, I've not actually found much empirical evidence that Muslims are more prone to violence. Here's what Steve Fish does. He collects data from all over the world, surveys of people from all sorts of cultures and religions that ask questions about their attitudes on violence, democracy, the role of religion in government, and so on. Then he looks at violence and the rates of violence in the different places people are from. And it's important to understand, Fish separates violence into three different categories. I look at ordinary violence, you know, street crime, and I look at homicide rates across nationally around the world in different countries, also at mass political violence, and then at terrorism. And when you break it down into these categories, what you see is that Muslims are way ahead when it comes to homicide rates. They have lower homicide rates in general than non-Muslims do. I don't have a good explanation for that, but the, the data are very clear on that. When it comes to mass political violence, Muslims are no better or worse. When it comes to terrorism, Muslims are worse. Islamism is, in fact, over the last 20 years or so, disproportionately responsible for acts of terrorism in the world. To say that most terrorism is, is committed by one group or another is to call it a tactic of violence which is different than other kinds of violence. So, so for example, does your data count an IED, an improvised explosive device, at the side of the road in Iraq where the United States military is occupying and killing civilians all the time, or at least sometimes, both at gunpoint and, and with drones? I mean, isn't it, isn't it calling, it's distinguishing it from a, a, a tactic of war and therefore ab, not absolving but, but just not mentioning in the numbers the kinds of violence that we consider more appropriate because it's done by a, you know, a state actor instead of a non-state actor. Right, right. Now that's a good point. And, you know, defining terrorism is always tricky. A lot of people will say, well, Okay, so you'll count um, what happened in Paris as an act of terrorism, but what about the American bombardment on, on Baghdad, for example, at the beginning of the Iraq War? Isn't that an, an example of terrorism? I actually do not count any targeting of military. For example, um, you know, an explosive device in Iraq that targets American military as terrorism. Terrorism I define strictly in terms of attacks on civilian targets which means that attacks on, on military installations are not counted as acts of terrorism. And so you're absolutely right to say that we should be very careful about how we define terrorism. But I think it's important not to define terrorism 
as guerrilla warfare or as attacks on occupiers or perceived occupiers. Tell me what you found that is different. Um, that maybe were you know those of us who are being too too PC or something would miss if we d- if we didn't have you to look in the data for us. Well, if you look in the data, what you see is that in fact um, you know a very large portion of the acts of terrorism in the world that have happened over the last um, 20 years or so are committed by Islamist groups. Whether you're looking at the number of people killed or the actual number of incidents, that, you know, something in the order of 60% of all acts of terrorism around the world that claim, oh, 15 or more lives, I think is the threshold that I use and that a lot of analysts use, um, are in fact committed by groups that claim to speak in the name of Islam. Now, again, those tend to be geographically concentrated in a handful of countries that have civil wars going on that don't necessarily have a lot to do with Islam per se, or, for example, in Israel and it's in, in the occupied territories nearby, which a lot of people would say is really a kind of national, you know, nationalism, Palestinian nationalism rather than Islam at work. Um, so the numbers do show that there is a problem. With, uh, with violence in, in the realm of, of terrorism. There are other groups that commit violent acts of terrorism. For sure, um, Sri Lanka has a lot of terrorism committed by partisans in their civil war. There's a great deal of narco... The Tamil Tigers. The Tamil Tigers, exactly. The narco-terrorism in Colombia. Um, there are a lot of different groups in the world that commit terrorist acts that are not associated with Islam. But... Um, a grossly disproportionate number of acts of terrorism in the world over the last 20 years have been committed by groups claiming to speak for Muslims. Now, most of those incidents, of course, are condemned by the vast majority of Muslims in the world, just the same way that most Christians would condemn you know, the violence committed by the, the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. In fact, most of us wouldn't even consider, most people who grew up in a Christian tradition wouldn't consider that even to be Christian violence. We just say there's a kook who claims to, to speak for God mm-hmm. and to be a Christian. And that's the way a lot of Muslims look at this terrorism, is that they say, you know, this isn't Islam, these guys don't have anything to do with me, and so I'm not even going to talk about it. Um, others speak out against it. And unfortunately, some are silent about it. And I think that's what bothers a lot of people, is that a lot of Muslims, um, who a lot of people think should be speaking out very strongly against this kind of violence, will not speak out against it, or they'll speak out against it and then add the word but, and try to explain it away. So, for example, in the recent French incident, incident in Paris, you'll hear some people say, uh, yes, this was really bad, but the publication was really offensive. That's problematic. Um, you know, after after 12 people have been slaughtered by gunmen, you don't say but. Um, you just say it was really awful. And you wait till tomorrow to say but and explain the other side of it. I think there's a tendency, though, oftentimes to engage in that kind of rhetoric, which some people think excuses the violence. And there's no excuse for it. It's no excuse for terrorism. And I think that's actually a source of problems for a lot of people. You know, when it comes to whether the violence is actually inherent in Islam or not, I would say it's certainly not. I mean, you can justify violence 
it, you can find justification for violence or even terrorism in the Quran, but no more than you can find in the Christian Bible or in the Jewish Torah or in any other sacred text. So when people pick passages out of the Quran and say, see, the Quran actually endorses this violence, for every passage like that you can find two that say quite the opposite. Same thing for the Bible. So I don't think there's anything about these sacred traditions that incline them to, to violence. Um, at the same time, you know, I, I really think that if we want to understand this kind of violence these days, this terrorism, we have to look at its political roots, not its, not necessarily its, its religious roots. The trumpeter's horn blows a deafening sound. You plant your feet, you stand your ground. While the bricks you laid, they come crumbling Just a hollow skeleton of sticks and stone. This year's Global Terrorism Index says that religious extremism is the main cause of terrorism in the world. The report recorded 18,000 deaths in 2013, up 60% from the previous year. The majority, two-thirds of those terrorism-related deaths, were attributable to four groups. ISIS in Iraq and Syria. Boko Haram in Nigeria, the Taliban in Afghanistan, and Al-Qaeda. Overall, there has been a five-fold increase in death from terrorism since the 9-11 attacks worldwide. The report's authors attribute the majority of these incidents over the past few years to groups with a religious agenda. More than 80% of the deaths to, due to terrorism in 2013 were in five countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nigeria, and Syria. In the United States, looking at North America, almost all terrorism deaths were related to political extremism rather than religious. I want to make a, a very specific criticism of this study. Uh, and we've talked about this before in the context, actually, of the Sam Harris, Bill Maher, Ben Affleck debate. Uh, just because a given group cites religious beliefs I don't know that it's fair to say that religion is the primary driver of terrorism because lots of other rationales and explanations and excuses become relevant. If you look at economic power, inequality, uh, sociocultural standing, if you have that lacking in an area that is more religious, you will have more terrorism and it will be under the veil of religious extremism. If you have that same socioeconomic uh, strife in an area where the culture is more connected to politics than religion, you will still have more terrorism, but it will be under the guise of political extremism. So I am the first person to say, as we have always said on this program, 
that religious extremism does lead to violence in the real world. We have said that time and time again. But when we look at the study, we need to parse the numbers by realizing that just because a group is religiously affiliated doesn't necessarily mean that we can say religion in a vacuum alone was the driver of these terrorist acts. No, when you look at a group like the Taliban, it's very clear that they are uh, very politically motivated. Uh, they use religion uh, as an excuse, and they use it to uh, to recruit and uh, and all of that. But clearly, uh, there there is a lot of political motivation there. An interesting study, a valuable study, but we need to always explore what what do we really say when something is religiously motivated in, in terms of the specific actions of individuals of the group. What are we really talking about? We welcome Truth Dig's own Reverend in residence, Madison Shockley. With the violence in Paris in mind, the Reverend spoke earlier today in our studio to the capacity of terrorists of all types to exploit all religions, including Christianity. We were speaking off air. You said some profound things. Let's just start with this idea of we're all worried right now about Islamic terrorism, and you raised the specter of Christian terrorism. Well, I, I raised the question of whether it's appropriate and right to even label it Islamic terrorism, given that when terrorism is committed by Christians, we don't equally label it as Christian terrorism. I mean, right here in our own country, we have a history of Christian terrorism. The Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm would burn a cross on the lawn of their intended victims. And if that's not, you know, Christian terrorism, I don't know what is. And most people would not regard them as a Christian organization. So, oh, those are outliers. They're just using the religion. They're hiding behind it. And we could say the exact same thing about what's happening now, that these terrorists use Islamic symbols in the same way that the Ku Klux Klan uses Christian symbols doesn't make them Islamic. It doesn't really associate or say anything or teach us anything about the religion of Islam any more than the Ku Klux Klan teaches us about the religion of Christianity. And, and even on a more contemporary scale, there are organizations, the Army of God, and individuals who are motivated by the preaching of priests, many of them Catholic priests, who are rabidly anti-abortion, mm-hmm. who will bomb, maim, and assassinate uh, those nurses and doctors and abortion providers and even clients. And we don't call that Christian terrorism, even though the relationship between those who commit murder and mayhem and bombings in the name of God, in the name of their, their understanding of Christianity uh, against abortion clinics and providers, that relationship is the same with the Catholic priests who preach vehemently against it as the terrorists that we're witnessing now their relationship with some islamic uh, preachers you know something that jumps to mind as you say that are, are is the status of gays around the world and i think of russia where the orthodox church is and the and the, the religious uh, homophobic views of people certainly has played into a lot of you know beatings and things, but also in the role of Christian missionaries going over to places like Uganda 
and then those country, that country passing a, a law that could, I think they revised the law, but originally it would be the death penalty for, for committing acts of homosexuality. I think that's bordering on criminal. Right. That, that we would export uh, a, a system of belief that would put in jeopardy the lives of people in some foreign country that are sitting there innocently. And, and you're right. A lot of the, motivation for the enhancement of these of and the criminalization of these laws uh, comes from uh, this evangelical Christianity that is uh, spreading across South America and across uh, Africa and uh, the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church many I mean Christianity has a history of homophobia a history of, of, of patriarchy a history of slavery and uh, if you want to really want to talk about Christian terrorism just talk about the Crusades so the association between religion and terror is a broad and, and long history, and I don't think that it's fair in this moment uh, to forget that history and, and suggest, as so much of the media does, that there's something inherent about Islam yeah. that, that provokes this terrorism that we're witnessing right now. I mean, uh, even another example, if you talk about uh, the, the, the violence uh, inflicted in the United Kingdom by... Catholic terrorists and the IRA, but we didn't refer to that as Catholic terrorism. Uh, they were they were terrorists, and but they were religiously motivated. They identified their victims by their religion, and and it, it mimics all of what's happening now. But we didn't refer to it that way. So why is it that we treat some terrorism as political terrorism, even though it may be religiously? you know, used religion as a justification or an inspiration and other terrorism is there's something wrong with Islam, not with Christianity or, you know, another example, and this isn't terrorism, but um, in, in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo massacre, something interesting that happened is a uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish newspaper. I don't know if you saw this story. You know that famous photo of all the world leaders linking arms and marching yes, in solidarity? Yes. Well, they went in and they photoshopped out all the women from that photo because it's against their tradition to depict women. It's immodest to depict women. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. That's certainly not an act of terrorism, but it but anyway, let me get back to what is why do we make the distinction that there's something wrong with Islam but not Judaism or Christianity? Well, because Christianity is our religion. Mm -hmm. And so we 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 understand uh those distinctions and it's 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 not the kind of thing that we would demonize our own religion. We a lot sooner throw out throw the bums out that are contaminating our our, our religion. And because Islam is not our religion, it's an other, and we know so little about it generally, that it's easy to demonize that religion. It's easy to associate uh, the terror with which we come in contact with this vast uh, religion with which we have little contact. And so it begins with the terror, and then people make other assertions about it as being bizarre and they pick on the the strange and, and, and exotic aspects of, of their uh, uh, fantastic visions of the afterlife. But I maintain that Christianity is no less bizarre. It's just more familiar to us. Yeah. And in fact, any re religion that is not familiar to you becomes bizarre. And one could say 
all religion is bizarre, especially if you're not a part of it and understand it or have any rationale for embracing its exotic and, and fantastic aspects. But the very nature of religion is fantastic, if, if yeah. in the literal sense of that word. And so all religion is bizarre when you really think about it from a non-religious or secular scientific perspective. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once, and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether, or at least consuming in a subversive way. In the aftermath of attacks in Paris by Al-Qaeda-affiliated gunmen, we heard a familiar refrain. Where are the good Muslims, the ones that aren't engaging in violence? Why are they condemning this? What's so important and will be critical to our ongoing efforts uh, is for moderate Muslim voices to speak out. The Daily Show's chief Muslim correspondent spoke out, but his colleagues weren't buying it. Oh, I know what's going on. Because I'm Muslim... I gotta be condemnier than you guys. No, that's yeah. No no, 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 no. You guys are holding me to a condemnier standard. No. Muslims around the world have already spoken out. The Arab League, French Muslim Religious Council, Muslim leaders in India, Spain, Austria, Ukraine, Australia, Lebanon, all have released statements of condemnation in Paris just to show how condemning we are and to honor the kosher supermarket victims. Muslims were holding "I am Jewish" signs. I don't know. Nah, buddy. That's a sandwich board. Yeah, He's wearing the lunch special suit. Right. Ani Zonneveld is founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values. She's also a musician, and she started her organization after releasing an Islamic pop album that many in the Muslim community took umbrage with, both because she's a woman and because she fused Islamic scripture with a progressive interpretation. I am Mola. sought a community that embraced Islam's egalitarian spirit that she says is enshrined in the Quran. But what began as a personal project has since evolved into larger-scale policy work with the UN and others to counter Islamophobia and radical misinterpretations of Islam. 
Following the Paris attacks, her group responded differently from other moderate Muslim organizations. Our reaction was not to issue yet another condemnation. Our reaction was to post an image of Prophet Muhammad that was drawn centuries ago with a caption that said, no one died for this drawing. And we went on to describe the many incidences where intolerance was directed at Prophet Muhammad and his reaction, which was essentially no reaction. Because we hear about all these bombings and killings. Anjum Chowdhury is a regular on Fox News and even on CNN. He's the British Muslim cleric notorious for his extremism and uh, support of ISIS. And he's recently published an op-ed in USA Today. And a few months ago, he was featured on 60 Minutes. He does get a lot of press. Yes, and if you're prejudiced already against Muslims and you have this fear of Islam, that's an easy narrative for you to buy into. And it's probably a narrative that you want to buy into. And that has been an uphill battle for many of us, especially progressive Muslims, who get cut out of many of the stories. Give me an example of that. How do you get cut out? An example is when LGBT Muslims are being interviewed, a lot of times they are being ostracized by their family, by members of their community, and by the imams. And we would be interviewed because we are the only Muslim organization that advocates and is affirming of LGBT Muslims. And then, of course, your homophobic imam is interviewed. At the end of the day, the one that gets cut out is us. So the big picture you would get is the poor LGBT Muslim that's discriminated by family and the community and the homophobic imam. And when you hear enough of that story, then your perception of Islam is completely homophobic. It is incompatible with democracy. It is incompatible with our American values, especially given where we're at right now. Do you find in the moderate mosques there's a great deal of tolerance for LGBT members? In the moderate mosques, they have shifted their positions. They're gay. They are more than welcome to come and pray at the mosque. It's a human rights issue, period. We were not a homophobic society for centuries anywhere in the Muslim world. Some other justification for the British colonial powers occupying the Muslim lands was because we were too homo-friendly. And they implemented criminalization of homosexuality in the nation states that they ruled over, which we still have in some of, you know, like Malaysia, for example. As a matter of fact, a lot of people don't even know that there is no punishment for homosexuality in Islam. Your work is rooted in religion. And you say that acknowledging the religious basis of extremist violence, even if that religious justification is invalid, is crucial for Muslim organizations. You don't see enough of that direct countering of the argument made by groups like ISIS, do you? No, and I don't think that we Muslims can have an honest discussion if we're going to be dismissive of the theological basis for all these atrocities when the recruiting tools that are being made by Al-Qaeda and by ISIL is religious language. On the other hand, in arguing against their interpretation, don't you run up against the problem that, as with the Bible, you can find practically anything to support your issue in the Quran. In the Quran, 
Believers are warned that if you kill one person, it's as if you've killed all of humanity. But it also commands them to slay the idolaters wherever you find them. That particular verse about slaying the idolaters where you find them, if you are buying into that interpretation because you want to find religious justification, I think it's the responsibility of Muslims and religious leaders to reframe that in a historical context. You talk about the severe consequences of what happens when that discussion gets shut down. Specifically, you mentioned the mosque in Boston prior to the marathon bombing. So when one of the brothers, I believe it was Tamerlan, came into the mosque in Boston and started spewing hate, radical rant, the reaction from the mosque authorities was to throw him out. And on one level, we in the Muslim community completely understand the fear of what could happen to the mosque. Uh, Homeland security would be on them in no time. But on the other hand, the conversation that's being had in the Muslim communities is, you know what, we should have been more compassionate to these boys. We should have directed them. We should have counseled them. So there is a real in-depth rethinking in the Muslim community. That's the conversation most outside the community do not know about. It's often said that moderate Muslims lack a united front so that their individual statements condemning extremism kind of get lost in the ether. They lack impact. But there have been some collective actions, right? There are 129 scholars, for example, who wrote an open letter to Khalif Baghdadi. The head of ISIS. Countering point by point Baghdadi's religious justification for his human rights abuses and his atrocities in the name of Islam. As a Muslim organization, this is almost like a gift to us because on, say, for example, child rights, when a child is being forced into marriage, that is against Islam. And we can use the very arguments that the scholars have made in order to prop up our position as well. Uh, it's ironic because they were countering injustice with sound theological arguments, but back home... Unfortunately, back home, these very scholars uh, in traditional Muslim societies are not following through with their own rulings. Now, when Saudi Arabia comes out condemning the murder at Charlie Hebdo, well, two days later, they were lashing Raif Badawi. He's a blogger? He's a blogger, and he set up a liberal Saudi website where he was encouraging Saudis to have a healthy discussion about religion. He is in prison for 10 years, 1,000 lashing, so he received his first 50. The flogging happens after Friday prayers, so they will announce it to the congregation. So come witness the lashing of Raif Badawi for his insult of Islam. Um, the texts that ISIS uses, are they Quranic texts generally? They are hadith. Hadith is a collection of writings by lay people 100 to 100 years after the Prophet Muhammad died, claiming he said this, claiming he did that. And it is with the Hadith that ISIS has justified beheading, slavery, selling of women, killing of non-Muslims, forced conversions, and That's all right. of that, in That's contradiction, right. you say, to the Quran. 
Correct. A lot of the hadith contradicts the Quran. Now, if you're a Muslim, you're supposed to believe the Quran is God's word, but they've elevated the status of the hadith to the point of equal of the Quran, and that is the problem. So, organizations like yours are working on the local level, on the international level. You've worked with the UN. Do you feel that you've made some gains? What will it take to change perceptions? Perceptions will change when Muslims will actually do the hard work. We cannot claim that this is just Islamophobic rant. Our message of redefining uh, what Sharia is and what Sharia law is is actually taking root at the international level. A lot of nations and a lot of Muslims even are ignorant of the difference between the two. Sharia is divine inspiration. It is described as that watering hole that quenches your spiritual thirst. Sharia law is extrapolation of Sharia, meshing it up with secular cultural practices of the day and pre-Islamic practices. Now, if Sharia law was truly God's law, it would not be contradicting what is in the Quran, number one. If Sharia law was truly God's law, every time I go back to Malaysia, Sharia law there should not be changing It should be a constant between all the Muslim countries, but that's not the case. So our argument against Sharia law is pulling the rug from underneath all the human rights abuses done in the name of Islam. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Let's talk about the film American Sniper. A lot of our audience has been asking me, David, are you going to see American Sniper, the story about former sniper Chris Kyle? And uh, actor Seth Rogen has recently made some pretty bold comments where he compared American Sniper to the Nazi propaganda film that plays during the film Inglorious Bastards. And a lot of people have accused Rogan of acting in a propaganda film himself, right? The interview last month. Uh, the difference being that the interview did not portray the U.S. government in a positive or innocent light. It did not uh, 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 lead to countless people coming out of the film, as they did with American Sniper, wanting to, quote, kill ragheads, as many people tweeted. Very, very different situation, the interview in American Sniper, wouldn't you say, Lewis? 
One is just an over-the-top, goofy comedy that no one would take seriously. So, I, you know, I don't think it makes sense to even attempt to compare the two. Bradley Cooper, who's in the film, said that he doesn't believe it is a political film, that it has a political slant of any kind. But there is no question at all that the film has influenced a lot of people into coming out and tweeting things like, for example, quote, I teared up at the end of American Sniper, great effing movie, and now I really want to kill some effing ragheads. Nothing political, Lewis. I mean, that's just the unbiased response anyone would have to a factual retelling of the U.S. incursion into Iraq, of course. Here's another tweet. Quote, American Sniper makes me want to go shoot some effing Arabs. Quote, Nice to see a movie where the Arabs are portrayed for who they really are. Vermin scum intent on destroying us. And, quote, American Sniper made me appreciate soldiers a hundred times more and hate Muslims a million times more. It's incredible to me, Lewis, that the U.S. invades Iraq, uh, which had nothing to do with 9-11 or WMD, two of the implicit and explicit links that we were told about, which makes this a U.S. invasion, arguably a hostile, illegal invasion, according to international law, uh, an act of aggression. The U.S. then is involved as a result of that invasion. The death of hundreds of thousands of Iraqis is at the hands of, of the U.S. military. And then we have a sniper who kills 255 people, and uh, the film is portrayed as uh, that, that is a American hero, and people in their own country are portrayed as these savage ragheads that we hear tweets about. And everybody's just thrilled about how this is not a political movie, Lewis. It's just a story about the facts. Now, there is an argument to be made here uh, for Clint Eastwood. And that is, if he was simply trying to accurately portray Chris Kyle's point of view. From his Chris book. Kyle's, huh? From his book. From his book, and uh, yeah, as a person, from his point of view, his 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 mindset, his mentality around all of this, then I think it would be quite similar to the movie. Well, so, let's explore that for a second, Lewis, because if we're talking about just the book, we have to remember that there's a very specific question about whether Chris Kyle was actually portrayed accurately. Chris Kyle lost a lawsuit when he falsely claimed to have beaten up Jesse Ventura in a bar fight. He also claimed that he killed two carjackers in Texas, which was not true. His book sold so well that it was made into a movie, which is making millions for Clint Eastwood, catalyzing uh, ad hominems about ragheads and savage Muslims on Twitter. Murricans are getting all hyped up about wanting to go out and kill the evil Muslims. And we're talking about a story that uh, uh, has significant uh, lies in it, which have been proven in a court of law to be lies. One of the 17 victims in Paris was Ahmed Meribah. Uh, he is of Algerian descent. He is Muslim. He was the cop that was shown being executed by the two brothers uh, who had attacked Charlie Edbo. And he was lying on the ground. Uh, if you remember the original video we showed, uh, 
they just came up and executed him without a second of concern for his life. It's one of the most chilling videos I've ever seen. And, uh, and now, of course, he's being put to rest. And as he was, his brother Malik Maribat had, um, gave him a eulogy, which is really, really moving, and it's moved a lot of people, and I wanted to share it with you. And he said, my brother was French, Algerian, and of the Muslim religion. He was very proud of the name Ahmed Maribat, proud to be represent the French police, and defend the values of the French Republic, liberty, equality, and fraternity. It's very important. I mean, there it is. The French Republic is supposed to stand for exactly those three things. And if you let the terrorists separate you, and you let them destroy your fraternity by saying, okay, now we should treat some people differently, whether it's Muslims or the guys attacking uh, Jews in, in the bakery, uh, as happened in these set of attacks. And by the way, isn't that a terrible irony here that the Muslims who did the attacking, the, t- the terrorists who did the uh, attacking, say, okay, no, 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 Muslims have to be separate from the French. Uh, the French are the bad guys, and, the re- and Muslims uh, have to stick together, right? And the people who attack Muslims overall, the Islamophobes, that don't say, hey, you know what, uh, here's the problem with the extremists, the fundamentalists, or the terrorists. They say Muslims in general, and perhaps we shouldn't allow Muslims in France, or now we have some people on Fox News saying we shouldn't uh, allow them here in America, right? Well, they do the same thing. They try to split you apart, right? They say, oh, no, the Muslims should be here, and the rest of us should be there, right? It's fascinating that those two extremes agree. Well, the family of... Maribeth, the French police officer killed, do not agree. And here's what uh, Malik said. He said, I address myself now to all the racists, Islamophobes, and anti-Semites. One must not confuse extremists with Muslims. Madness has neither color nor religion. I want to make another point. Stop painting everybody with the same brush. Stop burning mosques or synagogues. You're attacking people. It won't bring back our dead, and it won't appease our families. So obviously the kosher bakery was attacked, four people were killed uh, by the terrorists. And then in counterattacks, we have had uh, Moss uh, being targeted in France. And he's saying, it's not going to bring my brother back. Certainly what, not what he would have wanted, what his family would have wanted. He was there trying to protect the French people. And the way to honor his memory is not to attack random people that had absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, that would aggravate the situation. You would be doing something very similar to what the terrorists did in the first place. Finally, he added, after the services were over, my brother was Muslim, and he was killed by people who pretended to be Muslims. They are terrorists. That's it. Now, I don't want to get into a definition of what is a Muslim and what's not a Muslim, and people can debate that all day long. But understand that people who call themselves Muslim are 1.6 billion people, and they vary greatly. And one of them was killed in these attacks. And his family says, for Christ's sake, God's sake, Allah's sake, for everybody's sake, stop attacking us based on race and religion, whether it's Muslims or Jews. Don't attack anyone. More sensible words have not been uttered. We wish that the rest of the people in France, America, and across the world would listen to them.
My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of $5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, and you're not even going to believe that this is a thing that needs to be addressed, we want to add the Middle East and North Africa as a region to the census in the U.S. I mean, seriously, who knew that this was a thing that hadn't already been addressed like a million years ago? But here we are. So apparently, the U.S. Census Bureau doesn't even recognize the uniqueness of people from the Middle East and North Africa. It's a region also referred to as MENA, M-E-N-A, which includes a significant number of Arab Americans, a group currently obviously experiencing heightened discrimination thanks to fear-mongering from the GOP and Fox News and Clint Eastwood and so on. And just imagine, you know, when they sit down to take the census as Americans, there is not a box for them to check to describe where they're from. It's ridiculous. And so, you know, in such a climate as we're in right now, them receiving specific designation from a governmental body actually has political, cultural, and practical implications. Because excluding a group from the census essentially makes them invisible from a political and policy standpoint. So the National Network for Arab American Communities and their parent group, the Arab Community Center for Economic and Social Services, are building grassroots support to create a new category on the census. The comment period is open now, so you can add your name to help reach the necessary 5,000 supporter mark by visiting the Take Action tab at nnaac.org. Comments close on February 1st, so please act now before this opportunity passes. A successful campaign would mean including the Middle East and North Africa region in the 2020 census, giving people from that community more power with office holders. Because people from the region identify with many racial backgrounds, they are not viewed as a group from the governmental and policy standpoint, rights often begin with recognition, and census classifications serve as a resource to local and federal offices charged with caring for their constituents. The census is also used by nonprofits and organizers, so official recognition of the region allows for non-governmental agencies to address the needs of a community that is underserved, not just because of racism and malevolence, but also because of simple ignorance on the part of those who administer the services. So visit nnaac.org and add your name. The census only comes around every 10 years, so missing this opportunity means another decade without recognition. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If ending exclusion and access to resources matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Census Bureau comment period via social media so that others in your network can add their support. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? 
Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. On November 5th, 1990, a man named El Sayed Nasser walked into a hotel in Manhattan and assassinated Rabbi Meir Kahana, the leader of the Jewish Defense League. Nasser was initially found not guilty of the murder, but while serving time on lesser charges, he and other men began planning attacks on a dozen New York City landmarks, including tunnels, synagogues, and United Nations headquarters. Thankfully, those plans were foiled by an FBI informant. Sadly, the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center was not. Nocera would eventually be convicted for his involvement in the plot. I'll say it, Nocera is my father. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1983 to him, an Egyptian engineer, and a loving American mother and grade school teacher who together tried their best to create a happy childhood for me. It wasn't until I was seven years old that our family dynamics started to change. My father exposed me to a side of Islam that few people, including the majority of Muslims, get to see. It's been my experience that when people take the time to interact with one another, it doesn't take long to realize that for the most part, we all want the same things out of life. However, in every religion, in every population, you'll find a small percentage of people who hold so fervently to their beliefs that they feel they must use any means necessary to make others live as they do. A few months prior to his arrest, he sat me down and explained that for the past few weekends, he and some friends have been going to a shooting range on Long Island for target practice. He told me I'd be going with him the next morning. We arrived at Calverton shooting range, which, unbeknownst to our group, was being watched by the FBI. When it was my turn to shoot, my father helped me hold the rifle to my shoulder and explained how to aim at the target about 30 yards off. That day, the last bullet I shot hit the small orange light that sat on top of the target, and to everyone's surprise, especially mine, the entire target burst into flames. My uncle turned to the other men and in Arabic said, Ibn Abu, like father, like son. They all seemed to get a really big laugh out of that comment, but it wasn't until a few years later that I fully understood what they thought was so funny. They thought they saw in me the same destruction my father was capable of. Those men would eventually be convicted of placing a van filled with 1,500 pounds of explosives into the sublevel parking lot of the World Trade Center's North Tower, causing an explosion that killed six people and injured over a thousand others. These were the men I looked up to. These were the men I called Ammo, which means uncle. By the time I turned 19, I had already moved 20 times in my life. And that instability during my childhood didn't really provide an opportunity to make many friends. Each time I'd begin to feel comfortable around someone, it was time to pack up and move to the next town. 
being the perpetual new face in class, I was frequently the target of bullies. I kept my identity a secret from my classmates to avoid being targeted, but as it turns out, being the quiet, chubby new kid in class was more than enough ammunition. So for the most part, I spent my time at home, reading books and watching TV or playing video games. For those reasons, my social skills were lacking, to say the least. And growing up in a bigoted household, I wasn't prepared for the real world. I'd been raised to judge people based on arbitrary measurements, like a person's race or religion. So what opened my eyes? One of my first experiences that challenged this way of thinking was during the 2000 presidential elections. Through a college prep program, I was able to take part in the National Youth Convention in Philadelphia. My particular group's focus was on youth violence, and having been the victim of bullying for most of my life, this was a subject in which I felt particularly passionate. The members of our group came from many different walks of life. One day toward the end of the convention, I found out that one of the kids I had befriended was Jewish. Now, it had taken several days for this detail to come to light, and I realized that there was no natural animosity between the two of us. I had never had a Jewish friend before, and frankly, I felt a sense of pride in having been able to overcome a barrier that for most of my life I had been led to believe was insurmountable. Another major turning point came when I found a summer job at Busch Gardens, an amusement park. There I was exposed to people from all sorts of faiths and cultures, and that experience proved to be fundamental to the development of my character. Most of my life I'd been taught that homosexuality was a sin, and by extension that all gay people were a negative influence. As chance would have it, I had the opportunity to work with some of the gay performers at a show there, and soon found that many were the kindest, least judgmental people I had ever met. Being bullied as a kid created a sense of empathy in me toward the suffering of others, and it comes very unnaturally to me to treat people who are kind in any other way than how I would want to be treated. Because of that feeling, I was able to contrast the stereotypes I've been taught as a child with real-life experience and interaction. I don't know what it's like to be gay, but I'm well acquainted with being judged for something that's beyond my control. Then there was The Daily Show. On a nightly basis, Jon Stewart forced me to be intellectually honest with myself about my own bigotry and helped me to realize that a person's race, religion, or sexual orientation had nothing to do with the quality of one's character. He was in many ways, a father figure to me when I was in desperate need of one. Inspiration can often come from an unexpected place, and the fact that a Jewish comedian had done more to positively influence my worldview than my own extremist father is not lost on me. One day I had a conversation with my mother about how my worldview was starting to change, and she said something to me that I will hold dear to my heart for as long as I live. She looked at me with the weary eyes of someone who'd experienced enough dogmatism to last a lifetime and said, I'm tired of hating people. In that instant, I realized how much negative energy it takes to hold that hatred inside of you. Zach Ibrahim is not my real name. 
I changed it when my family decided to end our connection with my father and start a new life. So why would I out myself and potentially put myself in danger? Well, that's simple. I do it in the hopes that perhaps someone someday who is compelled to use violence may hear my story and realize that there is a better way. That although I had been subjected to this violent, intolerant ideology, that I did not become fanaticized. Instead, I choose to use my experience to fight back against terrorism, against the bigotry. I do it for the victims of terrorism and their loved ones, for the terrible pain and loss that terrorism has forced upon their lives. For the victims of terrorism, I will speak out against these senseless acts and condemn my father's actions. And with that simple fact, I stand here as proof that violence isn't inherent in one's religion or race, and the son does not have to follow the ways of his father. I am not my father. from Cleveland, trying to limit how much I call in lately, but uh, something's kind of been sticking in my craw, i got to tell you about. Um, I, we were having a, dis- a group of people and I were having a discussion about the entire Charlie Hebdo situation, and a woman who I didn't even know <clears throat> started bastardizing Muslims, and she went on for her justification of hating these people and thinking that they were subhuman because of that video of the child, you know, basically uh, assassinating a prisoner. And she talked about how these people were disgusting and this and that. And I asked her, well, that's, that's, I understand you feel like that, but where's your outrage been for the last 40 years about all the children's soldiers in Africa? You know, maybe you've seen this documentary about Coney, or maybe you even might have heard who he was. And she didn't know what to say when I said that to her, Jay. And... I mean, cutting through the cloud of BS, children soldiers have been there, and they've been doing terrible things for decades. But this woman now all of a sudden cared because they weren't killing each other or just killing other people of a race different than her. All of a sudden, when you know Muslim extremists can get children to do atrocities on people that might look like her, now all of a sudden it's got her attention and it's disgusting. And she apparently had no knowledge of the history of children soldiers in Africa. So, again, I think almost every problem that we address with your show and with discussions in society all stems back to education and not necessarily formal school education, just education in general acceptance of people. So, anyway, here's my hope for a better future this year, and uh, keep up the great work. Hi, Jay. This is Zena from New York. I have to admit that after your shows in Ferguson, I needed a break for a little while. I'm just not catching up, and I must say that I'm extremely sad. The Ferguson shows made me cry, and not just when I heard them, but I felt myself battling tears at any given moment afterwards. Because it was like having my very obvious concerns and fears put on blast and being repeated and drilled home constantly. 
I called a few months ago thanking you for your show and for giving me the communication tools to get in all getting around the big P privilege in America when I'm speaking to my friends and coworkers. While I believe that I have the tools to educate and enlighten my fellow brothers and sisters of another race, I'm capital S sick and tired of trying to convince them that we don't deserve to die at the hands of those paid biotax dollars to protect themselves. That it isn't right that we don't feel safe in our own neighborhoods or that every brown and black child needs to have that dreaded talk with their parents that has become more important to us than that of the burden deeds. I'm trying to keep the faith, but it's so darn hard. As a black woman, without kids, my world is upside down, and all we want to do is to live free. Isn't that the American dream? Thanks again for all you do, Jay, and until next time. Hi, Jay. This is Erin in Philly. I'm calling with two thoughts today. First is, I just want to say about the torture report episode that you put out in December, I, a lot of the episodes have gotten me angry in the past. I think that might be the first one that I've ever actually yelled at the radio while I was listening to it. Just the shit happens, mistakes were made, oh well, at least we're talking about it. You know, doesn't that make us great? Absolutely infuriated me. And I had to stop listening a couple of times because it doesn't really do to start punching your monitor while you're at work. But the thing that makes Best of the Left so valuable to me and why I'm a member and why I keep listening is then you follow it up every time with your activist calls to action. And that's absolutely what keeps me going when I run into a situation like this where I'm just so angry, I don't know what to do, and you give us something we can do. And I really appreciate it. it even if I don't have any hope that it'll go anywhere, at least I can say, look, I said something, I put my voice out there, and I'm not completely hopeless. And that's more valuable than I can say, and certainly more than I can afford to pay for a membership, but I do what I can. The second thing was, I don't know if you chose these topics consciously for a year in review, but having the torture report, the death penalty episode as a rerun, and the episode on police brutality, the injustice system, within a very short span of time, it draws such a clear line for me that it must be something in the cultural DNA of the United States that there's this individual and governmental divine right to kill, uh, to kill other people. And it shows up in the torture report, well, hey, you know, they were bad guys and sucks that we got caught, but we're not that sorry that they died, and, you know, the death penalty, the often cited, although not entirely true, statement that we're the only industrialized country that still has it. Japan, I would say, is about equal to us in industrialization. They also still have the death penalty, which is interesting, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. And then the idea of yeah, that police can just kill people because they feel threatened or because they don't feel that they were getting a proper respect tasings, pepper sprayings, etc., which can and have, especially in the case of taserings, led to death. And, you know, then it goes on to open carry, concealed carry, Second Amendment, stand your ground, and then on the bigger side, drone strikes and, you know, wars of aggression and worldwide empire and, and this and that and everything else, even up to nuclear arms, you know, and it's, it's this just amazing thing that, that clearly there's this this cultural idea that we have the right to kill people when we feel threatened or when we feel offended or who knows what uh, it's almost too easy to risk a godwin here and point out that 
the recent killings in France betray a similar mindset. You know, we were offended, therefore we have the right to kill you. It's it's kind of bizarre, but then again, you know, look at the societies we're talking about. Japan, very con- culturally conservative, although not especially religious. And then, of course, all the Middle Eastern countries that always get named both culturally and religiously conservative. I hesitate to go too far on a, a short-ish voice message, but I think there's some pretty obvious dots to connect. And there's also some really interesting research out there on you know, religiosity, belief in free will, and preference for a retribution model of justice rather than a rehabilitation or reconciliation form that might be more popular to more liberal uh, and more deterministic materialistic folks um anyway it, it that gets a little out in the weeds but uh, again thank you so much for curating these episodes in a way that that bring up these thoughts bring up things that i can discuss with my friends and as always thank you so much for the activists call to action that keep us going i hope you're having a happy new year so far and keep up the great work Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I have a couple of requests for you today, and I'm excited. These are not political requests at all. They're very old-school style podcasting requests, and so I'm I'm sort of feeling nostalgic about these. The first is about as old school as you can get. The podcast awards have come around yet again, and I would love to be nominated. Pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, You go to podcastawards.com. The nominating process is going on now through the end of January, and here's the part that's not necessarily intuitive, I would love to be nominated in the best produced category instead of the news and politics. You know, for a variety of reasons, I've just, you know, I feel more comfortable in the best produced category. This show is political, obviously, but I feel like the sort of the value added that I bring to the show is for my production. That's what I work really hard at. And uh, and so that's where I like to go. And it has the added benefit of not putting me up against people who are probably friends of mine who do other political shows. Uh, you know, Sam Cedar, I know every year, uh, tr- tries and goes for a, a podcast award. And, you know, if I go up against him, he gets really catty. And so... We can just avoid that whole messiness. You can only nominate once. You go, there are, you know, like a dozen or more categories. You fill in one show for each category. You hit submit one time and you're done. Secondly, today, there is another podcast, not mine, that needs your support. And it's uh, it's produced by my friend Ben Wickler. It's called The Good Fight. If you've been a listener of this show for a while, there's a good chance you've actually heard it, whether or not you even knew it. And I was asked recently in the last month or so, you know, hey, Jay, like you're the one who would obviously know what's the the best progressive show out there. Like what, what's a new show that people really shouldn't miss? And without a doubt, head and shoulders above the rest, I say the answer to that question is the good fight. The basic way to describe it is it's like taking the production value and techniques of a show like This American Life And then having every story focus on progressive fights from like a David and Goliath style bout between grassroots organizers and their giant corporate moneyed interests and, you know, 
that's why it's called the good fight. It's these, these little guys tackling the good fight and then they come on the show and talk about basically what it takes to win. It's very inspiring, very insightful. And uh, it, I, I was talking to Ben once and he's described his show to me you know, a couple of times where he says that the amount of work he puts into each episode, he feels like has you know a direct correlation to the value that that episode can impart to the listeners. So he, he thinks that you know the more work he puts into each episode, the more he's earned the listeners who come and actually check out the show. And so you know he only does at their height they were only doing you know one new episode a week, but they've done you know a few dozen episodes and not a single one of them has been the least bit bad. Every single one of them has been excellent because of the amount of work that goes into it. So the issue now is that they have a fundraiser going uh, between Ben and you know a couple couple of producers working you know pretty much full time as far as I can tell. They're looking to raise $100,000 to pay for the next year of The Good Fight. So this is happening on Kickstarter. I will put a link in the show notes, of course. But if you just Google Ben Wickler, The Good Fight Kickstarter, you will find it. If you have a few dollars to send their way, I know it will be greatly appreciated. And just to give you a quick reminder of what this show is, I'm going to play one of my favorite clips. It's one of the earliest ones they did where they did a little comedy skit. I mean, they, they do, you know, interviews and conversations and, you know, every once in a while a comedy skit. And so I'll play just, a, you know, real quick and to remind you of who these guys are and remind you why they're worth keeping around. Aw, oh, cripes. I think that email is lost forever. Say, what's wrong? Oh, hello there. Well, I'm down in the dumps. I pressed the wrong key, and now I think my personal data is permanently gone. Well, Sue, I've got some news that will cheer you up. I happen to know that all of your personal data is safe and sound, indexed and stored in one of the most extensive databases ever created. Wow! What an amazing service! Who are you, anyway? And how do you know my name? I'm from NSA Backup. We know everyone's name. NSA Backup? What's that? If you trust other backup companies with your data, a million things could go wrong. You could lose your password. You could forget to run your backup program. But at NSA Backup, there are no passwords and there is no program. We just automatically back up all of your data from all sources all of the time. Well, some of my data was on my computer, but some was on my phone. Not to worry. With NSA Backup, your phone is our phone. In fact, anything you or anyone you meet says or does within 30 feet of an electronic sensor is automatically stored and indexed for all time. Wow. Say, how much does this NSA Backup cost? Well, our precise budget is classified, but the good news is that you've already paid for it through your tax dollars. So how do I retrieve my data? You don't have to. Our team here at NSA Backup regularly reviews your data for you. And if we find anything threatening, we'll make sure that you and your family are immediately taken care of. But that's not what NSA I... NSA Backup. Always on, always watching. Like a god. So that gives you a sense of what they're like. But, you know, they cover a whole variety of topics just like this show does. Uh, most recently during the election, they were doing a lot of excellent work on Mayday Pack, getting money out of politics. Uh, one of the clips I used most recently from them was about police body cameras. There was a really great interview. I mean, lots of people were talking about police body cameras 
literally no one did an interview as good as the one that was on The Good Fight about police body cameras and covering it from every possible topic, looking at the upsides and downsides and figuring out how to address all of that. There's an episode that you know happened a while ago, but I remember vividly about sexual abuse in the military. I mean, just excellent show. Each one seemed uh, you know better than the last, and it seems obvious. I, I can't urge you enough to support the show if you have the money lying around. So again, I'll put the link in the show notes or just Google Kickstarter The Good Fight with Ben Wickler. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so tra-